Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, how's it going? It's going good, Yoel. How are you? Well, I don't know if you've seen this, but Canada's in the news. Have you noticed? I have noticed this, yes. Um, I'm, I've been getting frantic texts from my parents. Um, it was really cute, actually. So um, we, I was having a text conversation with Megan and my parents um, about this truck convoy. And um, Megan was sort of like, you guys got to get your shit together up there. Um, but my parents are very earnest texters. Um, so at some point I said, like, you guys should get out there and slash some tires. And my dad was like, well, actually, that would make the problem worse because we're trying to move the trucks. <laughs> your your dad has a good point. Just some context for uh, anybody who's not up on um, what's going on in Canada right now. We're recording this February 15th. Um, as we record, there's been an, a kind of like an Occupy Ottawa thing going on, led or like putatively led by truckers who are mad about vaccine mandates, although the people there seem mad about lots of things. Um, some allied folks blocked some bridges into the U.S., including one that was very commercially important. They've now cleared the people off of the bridge, I think, as of yesterday. They, they also took their sweet time doing that. But the Ottawa folks are still, I guess, thousands of people um, are still camped out down there, making life difficult for the residents um, on weekends. It becomes this giant party. They set up stages, <laughs> bands play. It's this whole... You remember the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, Chaz? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's sort of like that, except, you know, from the right, I guess these people are more... I mean, I, I don't know. Like, you hear different things, right? So, like, from some folks, you're like, these are a, bi a bunch of, like, insurrectionist white supremacists. And then from other people, you're like, these are just normal Canadians who are mad about vaccine restrictions, which I count myself in that group. So I'm, I'm not quite sure where to place these folks politically. Did your parents have any insight there? Uh, my mom insisted that these are not typical Canadians. <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah, I think the the polling shows like it, it, you know seventy percent of Canadians say that they, they don't support this. Well, then conversely, uh, I guess thirty percent do. Like thirty yeah, percent, like thirty percent is kind of thirty percent is substantial, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You put ten Canadians in a room. On average, three of them are going to be like go go truckers. If you were to go to um, an Occupy night party as opposed to a day party, um, would you choose a very liberal one or a very conservative one? Dude, you know, the thing is in the, um, I mean, this is sad, but in Seattle, like people were getting fucking murdered there. Like they were, they were totally getting shot. Um, so I would, I would choose Ottawa. Other than we have the Canadian yeah, confound. You know, I don't know who has the best parties. I, I, I want to give it to the left, you know, but am I just biased? I don't know. Hard to say. Hard well, to say. <laughs> that should be a session at SPSB. Unfortunately, I don't think it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Speaking of, are, are you virtually conferencing? I'm in-person conferencing, actually. Whoa. Yeah, that's, I know. So, <laughs> you didn't even so, consider that option. <laughs> no. Well, I'm so, this is like the thing up here, I'm so in this Canadian mentality of it's so hard to travel, you have to do all this testing, it's a pain, it's not worth it. But for uh -huh, you, you just uh -huh. get on a plane, right? Yeah, it's actually like not a big hassle to go there. Um, and yeah, basically all I had to do was make my vaccine card into an online version of a vaccine card. And I think I'm set. Boom. So how excited are you about this? 
actually quite excited. So it sound, it seemed like people were sort of like dropping like flies as um, things were getting closer. Um, but I'm going to get to see some people that I haven't seen in two years. So I'm pretty excited about that. And also basically half of the conference has become virtual. Um, so I feel like I can also spend a lot of time hanging out in San Francisco. So you're not going to sit in your hotel room and watch virtual sessions, I take it. <laughs> I mean, never say never. You know, you laugh when people are doing that, which just strikes me as the saddest thing in the world, right? <laughs> well, good for you. What percentage of people that you would want to hang out with would you say are are going, like versus a typical year? Um, Like maybe 50. I mean, you're not going, okay. so that's a, that's a huge loss. Thank you for saying that. I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> Glad that you said that. Yes, but, but half ain't bad. Yeah. So I don't know what it is about my demographic. Maybe it's that they're a little bit older, but there was an email thread that somebody sent around to like 10, 15 people who were like a lot of the folks that I hang out with and nobody was going. But I uh-huh. think these are people who have kids and it's just with childcare, it's so precarious because, you know, like one case and they shut it down and you're stuck with a kid for a week and you can't leave your spouse that way. So I uh-huh. think people are staying home because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's possible. Um, but yeah, it's weirdly like some of the people who are going are coming from really far. So one of the person, one of the people who's going is Simeon and she's um, in the US all the way from Australia. So it feels like I, I considered not going and then I was like, oh, well, when am I going to get to see these people otherwise? I'm uh, very envious and I wish I could be there in person. Yeah, me too. Wait, I have a, a timely question for you also. Shoot. Do you celebrate Valentine's Day? Oh yeah, corporate love holiday. Okay, so <laughs> yes, uh, I we we did. Um, I have to say, it was more that my girlfriend really wanted to celebrate Valentine's Day, and okay. I I wasn't going to stand in her way okay. if, if she was excited about that, which she was. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, we. Um, I made a roast. That was Valentine's Day thing, part one, activity part one. Okay. And and, and then she took us to the spa. There's a spa in Montreal that's like on a boat. Um, cool. And it has like, yeah, it's it's awesome. It has, especially in the winter, it has like out, outdoor hot tubs. It has like hot and cold circuits, you know, where you go in like a sauna and then you jump in a cold pool. Um, I will say that Valentine's Day is maybe not the day to go because it was like mm-hmm. overrun with the use. They were making out in the hot tubs. They were talking. You're not supposed to talk while you're in there, but they had just like, it was like anarchy. It's like Ottawa, right? They just, <laughs> they, they just dropped rule of law with the, with the talking thing. It was like, everybody was chatting. It was like, you know, you go on like a Wednesday morning and it's like the diehards who are like dedicated to the spa rules. And mm-hmm. yeah, Valentine's Day is a bit more of a festive scene, which I'm not into. Yeah, we we considered like going to a restaurant or something. Um, but that seems like the the last thing you want to do on Valentine's Day. Like, yeah, it's just so going to be it, like you're fighting the crowds. Exactly. Yeah. So what did you end up doing? Um, we so we now have a two year tradition of making cookies and like dropping them off at friends' houses. Um, so we did that, and then we like exchanged some gifts and like I I've been into um like doing sort of childish collage sketch combinations um so i made her one of those (laughs) is there any chance we could get a picture of that absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) fair enough i like the cookies though it's like you're spreading the love (laughs) yeah right you know feels a little less corporate yeah absolutely so um what are we drinking today 
I am drinking a beer called Guava Mango Fruited Sour, um, and it's from Fractal Brewing Project in Huntsville, Alabama. Nice. Have you had this one before? Nope. I'm excited. Awesome. So I have a new beer uh, to me as well. Um, so this is a, a beer from Unibrew, which is probably the biggest like craft brewer in uh, Quebec. Like if you've had a Quebec beer, it's probably been this one. Um, yeah. And they normally do these like really heavy, like kind of Belgian style ales, which I like, but which are also like kind of a lot. Uh, but this is different. This is a hazy India pale Lager. Uh, it's okay. the HIPL de Riviere Trouble. So, yeah. Um, 6.2% big can. We'll see how this goes. I It just occurred to me that Unibrew is a play on Unibrow. I feel like I've heard that <laughs> that <brewing laughs> many times before, and I never appreciated it. I mean, I believe it is. Like, right? It has to be, doesn't it? I guess the French threw me off, you know? It was yeah. like... Yeah, yeah. Who knows Those tricky French... Mean? You never know with them. All right, you ready? Yep. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> how is yours? <laughs> I think I just like burped and hiccuped at the same time. Um, pretty good. It's a very juicy. So this is like pretty bitter, but also citrusy. I like it. I wonder if like drinking an entire can of it, the bitterness is going to get to be over the top, but we're going to find out, Alexa. We'll find out. It's too bad that we're not in the same place. We could trade. I think this would this would cut the bitterness. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We could swap back and forth. Oh, sad. Now you're making me sad about not going SPSP. <laughs> All right. Um, so our main topic today, I want to be clear with our audience that I'm the one who suggested this topic. Uh, because we're going to be talking about a recent paper of Alexa's, uh, a solo authored paper. And I think it could be seen as egotistical to be like, I want to do a podcast about my own paper. <laughs> People could I was, think, I was hoping you would do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, just, just to be clear, this was a hundred percent my idea. I actually, Alexa didn't even tell me that she had this paper coming out. I had a Google scholar alert that sent it to me for some reason, maybe some paper that I'm on is cited, maybe one of the many labs papers. Uh, anyway, so I was like, whoa, Alexa Tullet, sole authored. Okay, so the paper <laughs> is called The Limitations of Social Science as the Arbiter of Blame, an Argument for Abandoning Retribution. Before we get to the content, it's kind of unusual to write a paper all by yourself. And I, I'm curious whether this is your first and what it was like. It's not my first, um, but it's one of two. Um, and actually, like, I kind of in, enjoyed it. So I really... I. There are fields that I don't envy because they write almost everything by themselves, you know, so like people who are writing books um, and yeah, spending so much time just like, yeah, in an office by yourself um, doing this research. And I don't think that I would like that as like my predominant mode of research or writing. Um, I like working with other people a lot, but um, there are challenges that come with collaboration <laughs> and there's something like kind of fun, I think, about being able to um, write exactly the paper that you wanted to write. And this was, like I think, an idea that I had been thinking about for quite a long time. Um, so it felt sort of like um, maybe it's like in, in some ways like personal to me or something that I felt a lot of ownership over. Um, so that 
that was appealing to me in this case. And I had had a friend who um, is in a field where people are mostly writing solo authored papers and books and things like that. Um, and she's like a bit of a contrarian. And she was like, um, why do you write papers with data? Data is stupid. Why don't you, why don't you write a paper with no data? And I sort of took her up on that. Um, that was like, oh, like maybe a very small part of the impetus for writing this. You were like challenge accepted. Friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just to be clear, uh, this is a kind of a theory argument paper. It's in uh, Perspectives on Psychological Science. No, uh, no data, no new data, right? You review <laughs> data. Um, so can you tell me kind of the core idea or argument that you're making here? Yeah. So um, the core idea is that um, I guess I claim that prisons have um, two main goals uh, or two main types of goals. Some of those goals are um, consequentialist and some of those are retributivist. Um, and so the consequentialist goals, I think, are things like um, preventing harm um, and keeping people safe and things like that. Um, and the retributivist goals are ones like paying people back for doing bad things. Um, so sometimes I think legal scholars use the term penal proportionality, so punishing people um, in proportion to the, the act that they committed. Um, and yeah, that, that goal, I think, is ex pretty explicit within the criminal justice system and also within prisons. Um, so basically, I make the argument that when we decide what's proportional, um, we're evaluating people's culpability, um, and social science comes into that decision sometimes explicitly um, and sometimes it's sort of in the background like we have ideas about things that pe make people more or less culpable so like we consider whether they're capable of acting rationally we consider whether whether they were coerced we consider things like you know how old they are so you know um, were they presumably responsible for their actions um, yeah so we factor age into those things um, and so all of those evaluations of culpability um, hinge on basically like an understanding of human psychology. Um, and so decisions about whether somebody gets treated as fully culpable um, are often influenced by social science research, either directly or indirectly. Um, so the paper is uh, a critique, I guess, of social science's ability to establish people's culpability. Um, and so I guess I, I, claim that it's not because social science research is um, not replicable enough, generalizable enough, and I guess inferentially strong enough um, to make the kinds of, of claims that we want to make when we're deciding, okay, this person is deserving of this kind of punishment. So I guess overall, then I argue for a shift away from the um, retributivist goals of the criminal justice system, um, but argue that you could still maybe try to pursue the consequentialist goals. So, so just to be clear, when, you know, when you're talking about retribution, deservingness is really important there, right? Right. right. Do they deserve a harsher or a more lenient punishment? And in order to do that, and this is not like, you didn't make this up, right? This is kind of like accepted, you know, 
bedrock kind of like axiomatic legal theory stuff, we care about how much the person is responsible for their actions, right? So babies are less responsible for their actions than adults. People who are, I don't know, having a psychotic episode and completely out of touch with reality are less responsible for their actions mm-hmm. than you know the sane and 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 so on. And and so from a retribution standpoint, we want to say, well, if we want if we want to know how much does the person deserve to be punished, we need to know those things about about their their state of mind. Um, how much is that action like actually a reflection of their character? Would you say that's a correct way to put it? Yeah, definitely. Whether an action is part of somebody's character is one of the like explicit goals, I think. Um, so yeah, in some cases, um, people will argue that uh, somebody is acting out of character and that's sometimes considered a, a mitigating factor, right? So that's, that's one of the reasons I think that like people's um, histories of you know, whether or not they've committed similar crimes in the past and things like that factor into decisions. What are some concrete examples of, of these issues with the social science research that, that that's brought to bear on this? I guess first, how exactly does the social science research come into play? I, I mean, so you can use your eyeballs to see a five-year-old isn't as responsible as a 30-year-old, right? Like mm-hmm. a, a normal five-year-old, normal 30-year-old. So where does the social science research come in in kind of setting these legal standards? Um, I can give you some examples. So um, so there's social science, I think, comes into play um, often in these sort of like precedent setting, setting cases um, where, for instance, cases where we're trying to decide um, how to treat people who have intellectual disabilities, right? So how do we Um, Where do we draw the line for intellectual disability and how should punishments be um, meted out differently depending on whether people have intellectual disability or not? Another example would be um, age. So one of the papers that I talk a lot about in in my paper um, is a paper by Steinberg and Scott where they go over evidence from the social sciences that is used to um, establish why adolescents are less culpable than adults. Um, and I think those kinds of examples are have been the sort of inspiration for writing the paper, not because I disagree with the arguments that they're making. So, so Steinberg and Scott are arguing that adolescents shouldn't be put to death, and they give a lot of social scientific evidence for why um, adolescents... Uh, are less responsible for their actions than adults. Um, and so as a result, they conclude that um, adolescents should be punished less severely. Um, so my argument is not, you know, with... Uh, their their goal is more compassion for adolescents, um, and my goal is more compassion universally, and which it follows from me thinking that the the lines that we draw between adolescents and adults are not very clear. Um, so, you know, when we say that adolescents um, generally don't have, their character is not as formed as adults, or they don't have the same capacity for rational action as adults, or they're more susceptible to social influence compared to adults. Um, those are, uh, first of all, very like difficult things to establish, um, but also... Uh, not universals. And uh, just because there might be differences between adolescents and adults, that doesn't mean that um, adults aren't susceptible to all of those things too. Um, so it's it's like the, the evidence that is often used to convince us that one group of people deserves additional compassion 
always feels to me like evidence that everybody deserves more compassion. Yeah, I want I want to get back to that. Actually, there's a couple things that I want to get back to. Um, but first, can you can you just give some examples because I did think this was really striking of the sorts of studies that have been used to support a claim such as for example, um teenagers are more susceptible to social influence than than adults. Yeah, right. So, um so one of the arguments um, used in the, the Steinberg and Scott paper um, to establish that that adolescents are less culpable than adults or um, less responsible for their actions um, is that they are more um, easily peer pressured, essentially, so less able to resist social influence. Um, and within their paper... Um, a lot of this evidence comes from uh, another paper. So, so Steinberg and Scott is like a, a review paper, right? Um, so a lot of their evidence comes from a paper uh, by Burns that was written in 1979. Um, and this study examined children in the third, sixth, ninth, and twelfth grades um, and how they responded to hypothetical situations where, that involve peer pressure, essentially. Um, so, uh, in the paper, I describe one of the examples of the, um, of these hypothetical situations. So these kids are asked to imagine, um, quote, that you are with a couple of your best friends on Halloween. They're going to soap windows, but you're not sure whether you should or not. Um, soaping windows is something that, uh, was not a phenomenon that I was familiar with. Um, so, sorry, to continue, um, your friends all say you should because there's no way you could get caught. What would you really do? Um, and then so children are asked to indicate um, on a six-point scale how certain they were that they would would or would not follow their friends' suggestions. Um, and so, I mean, obviously we can um, identify problems with this study like we can with any study, right? So, first of all, children are being asked to um, say hi, how they would hypothetically act. Um, we're also talking about uh, a situation that seems like relatively harmless. I don't know. I'm assuming soaping windows um, is less serious than causing violent harm to somebody. Um, and so, you know, uh, usually like these scenarios don't seem like very analogous to scenarios that would be we would be dealing with in a criminal justice context. Um, and then, um, so the results of this study showed a quadratic age trend. Um, so ninth graders, uh, showed the highest or, um, highest responses, um, to this question in this case, indicating that they would not follow their friend's suggestion. Um, and so in the paper, Burnt interprets these results as suggesting, quote, the results indicate that uh, conformity to peers peaks during mid-adolescence. Um, but, of course, we don't have any data from adults here. And um, so, obviously, like, you, it's unfair to critique one study um, and say that, you know, like, an entire, uh, con- the, the entire concept of reduced responsibility in adolescence compared to adults um, is undermined. Um 
But my my concern is that, first of all, that this study isn't like particularly bad. It's like, I think, fairly typical. Um, And the problems with this study are pretty prevalent throughout the literature. Um, But also that the kinds of studies that we would need to be doing in order to sort of conclusively establish that some people are definitely responsible for their actions and can be clearly put in a different category than people who we show more compassion to. Um, the kinds of studies that we would need to do that are just like in a totally different universe from the kinds of studies that we do. And, and um, I, I would like level the same concern of the research that I do as well. I mean, it's not good enough to justify those kinds of decisions. Yeah. So you have basically a scenario study with a certain sample of teenagers that are not you know, even nationally representative of the U.S. at the time, let alone now, and you're drawing some big conclusions about what our policy should be based on on that. I mean, based not not exclusively on that study, I assume, right? So could you say, well, you know, every individual study has a weakness, mm-hmm. of course. It's never about one study. It's about the sum of the evidence. And the sum of the evidence makes us pretty confident that this thing is true. Is that plausible at all to you? Yeah, I guess my concern about that, and I mean, this is a, this is something that like comes up in discussions of replicability a lot too, um, is that first of all, um, if there are sort of like flaws in a research literature that are systematic, um, so for instance, things like publication bias, um, we're more likely to, um, see, um, significant findings published than null findings, and there's various other things that we're more likely to see in the literature, um, then aggregating across studies is not going to eliminate those problems. Um, So even like, you know, when you do a meta-analysis of many studies, um, that will compound any bias that exists in the studies. Um, So if, if the problems in the literature are not basically like I don't know, randomly distributed or balanced out by other studies, um, then aggregating them is not going to solve those problems. And I do think that some of those um, those problems are never balanced out, basically. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're not even at the point where we can put a bunch of studies together and say something confidently about these questions. Like the the research literature is just so flawed, or, or I guess allows you to draw such limited conclusions that even in aggregate, we shouldn't be that confident. Yeah. I mean, that that's what I would argue. And I'm, I'm coming at, at this as much more of an, I have much more expertise when it comes to research methods within psychology and really social psychology um, than I do when it comes to uh, research examining, you know, uh, questions relating to culpability in adolescence or something like that. Right. Um, but one of the reasons why I think it's it's kind of easy to make the argument that the research isn't good enough in this case is because um, I, I find arguments that the research isn't good enough to make less serious claims pretty compelling. Um, so, for instance, like arguments that um, we should be more tentative drawing conclusions about, you know, uh, like COVID and behavioral responses to COVID and things like that because of the state of social science research. I find that those claims pretty compelling. And I think that the 
bar we should have for, you know, deciding that somebody deserves to be put to death um, should be basically the highest bar we have for, for research. Um, so it feels like kind of a, like an easy, like to be critical of the research in this context, because we should have such high standards for the quality of evidence we're looking for. Right. And just to be clear, these, so kind of precedent setting legal opinions really do rely heavily on this kind of social science research. I think that there's, um, there are people who claim that that's the case. Um, and that's the part of this, this argument that I have the least expertise on. Um, so there might be people who would disagree with that. Um, and I think that there is, uh, some extent to which like even our our intuitions are sort of like tied up in um i don't know if it's necessarily like social science research claims but but something like lay theories about uh psychology or social sciences um but i yeah it's i think that i think that somebody could argue that these um studies are not the deciding factor and that people are deciding more so um, based on things like intuition and legal history and things like that, um, which I think doesn't, it doesn't change the conclusion for me, um, but it maybe changes the, the, the role of social sciences in that argument. Yeah. So you might say, you know, these, studies are being cited more in a kind of post hoc justification way. Right. You have some intuition. Yeah. And, and then you reach for the social science that bolsters it. But regardless, you know, these kind of social science pieces, they are cited mm -hmm. in these legal opinions, right? And they give it at least the appearance of being more empirically grounded than, well, I just feel like teenagers aren't as responsible as adults. Right. And, and there are some legal scholars who argue that that I think is increasing so that there's like, um, more and more there's an expectation that people will be uh, basing these decisions in empirical research. Uh, and so, yeah, it might be increasingly the case that people are sort of, even if it is this post hoc rationalization process, like trying to rely on the research literature to make these claims. Right. Um, I wanted to come back to one of the... Um problems with with this literature that that you called out so replicability i think a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with generalizability i think likewise um but you talk about something called inferential strength uh -huh. um and i actually when i read the paper did not know what you meant by that yeah um and I, I thought that was a really interesting idea so can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that yeah so um it's funny that you were like, I didn't know what you meant by inferential strength because it took me a long time to figure out what to call that. And I didn't know, I was like, surely somebody has a name for this. Um, and it took me a while to figure out um, what, how people talk about this idea in like a technical sense, because I was more familiar with it in an intuitive sense. Um, so it's a pretty simple idea, which is that um, in particular, when it comes to legal decision-making, um, we make the assumption that if you are, if you're making a decision that's rooted in the social scientific literature, um, then 
you're assuming that you can go from group level data to making an inference about an individual. And so sometimes this is called um, group to individual inference. Um, and so, for example, one of the like one of the things that I think initially um, got me thinking about these kinds of ideas many years ago was um, watching like an episode of Law and Order um, where I can't remember the details, but it was, it was something like, OK, so and so has like a gene for um, that predisposes them to some kind of like aggressive behavior. And there was this debate about whether they should get a lighter sentence as a result. Um, and again, I had the same sort of reaction of like, okay, well, if we're going to, um, say like, oh, well, we shouldn't just like, uh, only be seeking to punish this person. We should just be considering the like consequentialist, um, results of our decision. Um, then we should just do that for everyone because this, way of like drawing lines seems totally arbitrary but in in these kinds of cases it's like you have these um perhaps correlations or perhaps group differences and you're not like in these legal cases you're not making a decision about a group you're making a decision about an individual so you have to go from something like um there's a correlation between, or there's some relationship between having this allele for this gene um, and aggression, and then infer from that that if a person, an individual person, has this allele, that they therefore um, are predisposed to um, aggression. And that kind of inference is really hard to establish. This was something that I learned a little bit more about in writing this paper. Um, but uh, uh, let me see. So I think it's it's Molinar. Um, I'll double check that. Uh, who talks about the importance when you're m making an inference about an individual, starting from data that's been taken at the group level. Um, it's really important for these processes to be ergodic, um, and what that means is that the patterns of variability, the the interpersonal patterns of variability. So patterns of variability between people um, need to match intrapersonal patterns of variability. So um, patterns of variation within a person. Um, and I guess it's very uh, rare that uh, psychologists and social scientists even sort of investigate whether processes are ergodic, let alone sort of establish that that's the case, right? So, I mean, I don't know if you, to take another example um, there's a lot of people in my department who study psychopathy, um, and it's sort of generally accepted that, you know, being high on psychopathy, uh, makes you more likely to commit, to commit crimes or something like that. Um, but of course that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody who scores high on a psychopathy scale is really likely to commit a crime or is less responsible or something like that as a result. I think this is something that people intuitively really understand right so basically like the problem is like there are always exceptions and um and we don't know when people are exceptions or not yeah is that is that particular to social science evidence so it seems like there's many cases in like let's say a criminal trial where you might use an example or, or give some excuse a, a mitigating factor where you couldn't be sure that it applies to the individual. So you might say, yes, this person committed these these crimes, but uh, they grew up in a home where they were abused. 
so you should be more lenient. And we don't know for sure that part of the reason they committed these crimes is because they were abused. And it, like, let's pretend for the moment that there's no like social sciencey stuff going on at all. It's just our lay intuitions. But I, I guess kind of as lay people, we do sort of, I don't know, like a quasi Bayesian thing where we're like, well, we're going to reduce our confidence a little bit that this is due to their inherent wickedness because there's this possible mitigating circumstance. So it seems sort of a problem for any sort of evidence that you would use in a in a trial that isn't you know, this person did this specifically because of this, right? You very often have to make these kind of leaps where you're like, well, there's some possibility that their behavior is due to this, but I'm not sure that it's due to this. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. And it's funny because you're using that example, like the example of somebody who we treat as a mitigating factor that um, they experienced some kind of trauma um, as something that's removed from, like you could separate it from, a social science research context. Um, And I think in practice that very well might be the case. So people might be drawing on those kinds of explanations purely based on intuition. Um, But I also have this, well, I have the first reaction of like, okay, well, intuition seems like even more lacking. Um, But also that that is sort of an inherently empirical question. So like, does, um, does, trauma cause people to be like less able to, I don't know, um, inhibit impulsive behaviors or something like that, whatever, whatever the sort of like intuition is for why like trauma would, um, make somebody more likely to commit a crime or something like that is sort of an empirical question is maybe it's, it's one that we think we know the answer to. Um, but yes, I mean the, yeah, the short answer to your question is I think it applies to all kinds of explanations that we give for people's behavior. Yeah, I mean, in practice, I think it would probably be like there'd be like dueling experts and the defense would call an expert that said, you know, yes, absolutely, this person's behavior was due to the trauma for these specific reasons. And the prosecution would call an expert that would call that into question, right? So like, I guess in that case, there is the attempt made to tie the person's specific behavior to this kind of more general thing that we suppose to be true, right? You have to have somebody to come in and say, yeah, this, well, this is why you can apply this kind of theory to this specific individual or their action. And I guess it's, it's harder to see how that would be the case if you're like, here's this gene that predisposes people to be aggressive, right? Uh Like, okay, well, how do you, what's the expert testimony that says we know it was operative in this case or, or it wasn't? Uh Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, the expert testimony thing is interesting. And also this idea that we could examine like an individual person's history and understand something more about the sort of like causal processes that are happening. Um, because yeah, it, in some ways it seems to me like there's always sort of like a reference to some sort of hypothetical, um, counterexample. Um, so, you know, if you look at, a an individual person's life and you see like, okay, they had this traumatic experience and then maybe you could, I don't know, you could, I guess, link that to, um, actions that, that happened later on, but there's always like a reference in some way to some imagined counterfactual, right? Like this person's life would have progressed differently if this hadn't happened. Um, and so that's why, to me, these these issues sort of all seem um, seem like things that 
you would have to establish empirically to be confident in them. Um, but that the empirical research also isn't sort of up to that, that challenge. Um, but I don't know that everybody has that, um, would, would have that perspective on it. So, so maybe people would argue like you don't need any empirical research to, to understand that, um, that trauma is a mitigating factor. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess in, in the end, like it is an empirical claim, right? And maybe some people are so confident of their intuitions that they are just willing to go with them without any evidence. But in the end, it does seem to be very clearly something about a claim about facts, right? If this mm -hmm. happens to you, you're more likely to whatever, you're less responsible for, for whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, a lot of the evidence that you review has to do with, um, and I think you just chose this as a convenient example, like the diminished capacity of, uh, of teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, and you point out that you, these arguments have been made to say, hey, we should punish teenagers less severely. Um, and one response to this undermining of, of the evidence um, that you do might be to say, great, I'm convinced that we should start executing teenagers again. So like what, you know, why do we automatic, like, like I presume that's not, you know, where you're trying to go, but, but what should lead us to favor? We should more, be more lenient even with adults rather than we should just be more severe with teenagers because this research is BS. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that because honestly, like it was sort of, um, I was really worried about, um, the paper reading that way. And when I wrote sort of shorter versions of the argument, when I was initially starting to think about this idea, I think that it could have been read that way. Um, so yeah, for instance, like I spend a lot of this, the, a lot of time in this paper critiquing the evidence that Steinberg and Scott rely on. Um, and Steinberg and Scott are arguing for something that I very much support, which is the idea that we should not execute adolescents. Um, so I think that that can be sort of, um, I guess, like a confusing angle. And I have um, other sort of like anecdotal ways that I arrived at um, some of the ideas that I talk about in this paper that have similar problems. So for instance, like I, I heard about, let's see, hold on. The, the execution of um, Lisa Montgomery, which happened um, in January of 2021, I believe. Um, so she was executed after like a legal battle where um, the defense was trying to claim that she had, I think, one very specific form of mental illness, like probably a disorder that a, a disorder that I hadn't heard of before. Um, but she was executed because so her crime was that she had uh killed a woman by cutting open her womb and taking the fetus out of her womb and then she claimed that this baby belonged to her and that like the the debate was like about whether this person um was mentally ill and i'm just like what? I would say yes. <laughs> what obviously. more evidence do you need? Right. Like, right. Anything else is superfluous. And so then I, again, I found myself sort of like uh, criticizing the the people who are arguing like, oh, we should have more compassion for this person. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess 
so the reason I think that we should <laughs> we should not go in the other direction, I, I think it's reflected in the sort of legal principle of um, innocent until proven guilty, right? That if we um, if we are unsure, then we should err on the side of uh, a more like compassionate response. Um, and so if you, I guess, if you then conclude that we're unsure in almost every case or in every case, um, then we should always be, you know, erring on this, the side of, of a more compassionate response. And that is what we do. So, so we do have ways of trying to think more about just sort of like the consequences and ignoring the retribution aspect, um, which we do when there are serious mitigating factors that we consider. Um, so we do have some experience in doing that. It's just that the vast majority of the time we don't do it. Let me like push this a little bit further because as I understand it, the argument is, you know, in a, in a legal context, let's not treat teenagers like adults. Let's treat everybody like teenagers. Uh -huh. But there's lots of things that we only let adults do because we think that they have the capacity to understand and meaningfully consent to do them. Uh, so uh, you have to be 18 to vote. Um, you have to be, I think in most states, 18 to consent to having sex, uh, to mm -hmm. join the army, to sign like a legally binding contract. And doesn't what you're saying undermine all of that stuff? So if we're saying... Even in the adult case, we're not sure of the capacity of any individual, so let's assume the least. Then how can we say that your randomly chosen adult is capable of consenting to sex or should be allowed to vote? <laughs> great, great question. Thank you. I guess I would. I guess I would approach it um, from like a the cost of different kinds of errors um, approach. So um, in this case. So you're talking about like, okay, well, maybe we're not sure about the distinction between um, adolescents and adults. So therefore, we should abandon the distinction between them and, and which direction should we go um, in terms of allotting or restricting freedoms. Um, and I guess what I would say is that the um, consequence of making an error. And I think this is what the, the principle of innocent until proven guilty is based on the, the consequence of finding somebody guilty when in fact they're innocent, um, I think seems much worse to most people than the, the idea of finding somebody innocent and, you know, it, when in fact they were guilty. Um, and those are not ideal terms because what I really mean is something like finding somebody I guess, responsible when in fact they're not or vice versa. Um, but I think it's like useful enough. Um, but maybe somebody would make a different argument, for instance, like the, the consequences of telling adults that they are not old enough to decide whether or not they can have sex is a, a pretty serious consequence. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> or, or by alcohol, you know, some of right. our favorite things. Uh, we maybe hypothetically are not, not competent to do. Uh, if if your uh, controversial ideas take hold and become widely accepted. Um, speaking of drinks, how are you doing on yours? I'm ready for another one. Me too. See you back here in a sec.
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Our DMs are open. You can at mention us as well if you want to get our attention. If you'd rather email, our uh, show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That will go to all three of us, uh, me, Alexa, and Mickey. Uh, finally, our show's website, uh, fourbeers.com, where you can find any of our episodes and also drop us a line there. As well, if you like, uh, if you're enjoying the show, please just take the time to uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Helps people find the show. It also, I feel, gives us credibility to have a lot of reviews saying how great we are, right? <laughs> I agree. Excellent. Uh, Alexa, anything I've left out? No, that sounds good. Sweet. What are you drinking for round two? Um, I'm doing a, a repeat and I've also already opened it because I'm splitting it with Megan. So it's a slap fight from Monday Night Brewing. Oh, yeah. I remember the slap fight. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've poured mine as well because I wanted to put it into this fancy glass that you see here. Oh, very nice. Yeah, isn't that nice? Yeah. I'm So I'm staying with a Unibrew, uh, but this is more of a traditional thing uh, that, you know, a traditional like Unibrew uh, beer. It's the Trois Pistoles. It is uh, a dark, like kind of Belgian style ale, very malty and sweet. It's a good winter beer. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. So before the break, um, we were talking about um, responsibility. What happens when you undermine the concept of responsibility? And, you know, I I guess the the obvious, you know, question is, well, if if we're not basing our legal principles on retribution, what what are we basing them on? And and so you mentioned that um, you know, a consequentialist outlook is another way to to justify you know punishments. Um, mm-hmm. And so how how would that look? Like let's say that we abandon this retributivist framework mm-hmm. um, for punishing. What does a consequentialist framework for punishing actually look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess like one place that you can start is, and I guess maybe this is a little bit unsatisfying, is to think about, yeah, like what we do in cases where um, we decide that there are like serious mitigating factors involved. So I think that the response in those cases is more, um, the the goals shift, right? So instead of being like, okay, what what punishment would match this person's like, what, what punishment does this person deserve? Um, we start thinking about like, okay, well, um, what consequence of these actions will first of all prevent them from happening again. So obviously there are cases when, you know, like people are, um, people have committed violent crimes or there's like abuse issues going on where potentially like separation from the, the people who are being abused, abused is really important. Right. Um, so considerations like that, um, and also considerations about, um, like handling mental health issues, um, helping people to like cope with trauma and things like that. So, I mean, I think that for, for people who, um, advocate for abolishing prisons, I think that the argument is that, um, that so part of our energies should go to prevention, um, but also that we should have, I guess, like ways of, um, of holding people like accountable for their actions that also focus on, um, 
on responding to trauma and responding to mental health issues um, and sort of like, I guess, rebuilding relationships between people and things like that, um, which is admittedly a pretty vague answer. Um, but I guess we, we see elements of these kinds of um, these kinds of approaches in various institutions that we have currently. They're just not used in a criminal justice context, I think. Yeah. So I guess it's not clear to me why a consequentialist framework necessarily leads to less harsh punishments. And in fact, sometimes it seems like it might lead to harsher punishments. So for example, like diminished capacity, say somebody's just kind of dumb. Um, mm -hmm. And you might say based on that, well, you know, they're, they're less able to control themselves or to think about consequences, and therefore they're less deserving of blame, it also maybe means that they're more likely to offend again, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know that that's true, but you can imagine a set of empirical mm -hmm. facts where that's the case. You can say, well, then, you know, from a consequentialist framework, we really need to incapacitate them. Like, so they should be locked up for a long time. You can imagine building sort of a predictive model that says, well, based on these risk factors that we know about you, you're X percent likely to offend again. And if the model says, you know, X percent is too high, you get locked up for longer. And so from a kind of retributivist standpoint, you might say, well, that's unfair, right? Like what they do did actually doesn't merit that long a sentence. It's like, well, doesn't matter. You know, our consequentialist framework says incapacitate them is prospectively an expectation uh, that the uh, welfare maximizing consequence. So don't mm -hmm. you go some down some like kind of uncomfortable roads if you if you'd like really adhere to this seriously? Yeah, that's possible. So I guess consequentialist as a term is like maybe vague enough for me to like hide behind in the paper. Um, so so I'm making this argument that we should just we should ignore um considering retribution and we should just focus on the consequences. And I think I do say at some point, like that's not easier. Um, so it's not like if we're considering what decision in a legal case would have the best consequences um, for everyone involved, that's not an easy decision to make. And I think it, you start to get into like the philosophical territory of, you know, what are the, um, dystopian outcomes, I guess, of like a utilitarian approach where, where we're just like trying to prioritize the greatest good for the greatest amount of people or something like that. And maybe that means like locking somebody up who, um, who didn't do it anything particularly bad because they have this like potential to, to do harm or something like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that like a consequentialist, uh, philosophy that would be employed in this kind of case would just um would have to be something that takes into account all of these things that are important to us so it can be as simplistic as just like okay well what what would cause um the the fewest harmful actions or something like that but we also need to consider how we would weigh um individual freedom right so um is it justifiable to completely deprive one person of their individual freedom um, to prevent a few small harms from being done or something like that? Um, so, I mean, I think that my answer to that is that um, it's possible to imagine consequentialist approaches that 
um, do in some cases involve harsher punishments. Um, and I, I suppose in some cases I might not be, um, opposed to that. Um, if you consider like, so it can be a really harsh punishment to be like separated from people that you love, but that could be the necessary consequence of, um, harming the people that you love. Right. Um, and so I think that there's no getting away when, when there's some form of accountability for people's actions, which I think is important. There's no getting away from that being painful for people. Um, and I wouldn't suggest that that's the main goal. Um, but I also think that it's very unlikely that removing, um, retribution as one of the goals of the criminal justice system would result in generally harsher punishments. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's like dumb versions of uh-huh. these kind of like consequentialist, uh, you know, nightmares that you can come up with right. where it's like, well, what if everybody's really happy if we, you mm-hmm. know, convict and execute this innocent person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think in practice you're like, eh, well, whatever. But I do think that like, I mean, it just doesn't seem, it, it, right. it seems like a dumb hypothetical, right? But I, I think where it's a very live possibility is, for example, um, algorithms used to predict recidivism. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, is something that totally is done, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, these algorithms take into account, uh, you know, a number of factors about the individual, and then they spit out a predicted probability that the person's going to reoffend. Mm-hmm. And part of the um, objection to them is like they're just not that accurate, uh, which fair enough. But I think also part of the objection is it's not fair. It's not fair that you are um, classified by an algorithm. And that determines how harshly you're punished rather than the individual facts of your case and your deservingness of punishment, Mm -hmm. right? So there are, I think, like pretty easy ways that if you 100% buy into this consequentialist mindset of like, well, we just in expectation want to imprison the people who are likely to reoffend. And yes, this algorithm does make mistakes. No algorithm is perfect. So yeah, we're going to be imprisoning some innocent, some people who are, sorry, not innocent, some people who actually would not have reoffended. But yeah, right. you know, well, that's, that's just how it goes. I guess part of my response to that is that like, if I, if I imagine a, a criminal justice system that's based on consequentialism and not retributivism, I imagine um, basically either no prisons or prisons that are unrecognizable. Um, So when you sort of consider the scenario where, okay, some algorithm is predicting that somebody is likely to, to reoffend. So therefore the algorithm says, you know, with no punitive intention whatsoever, it says like, you need to stay locked up. Um, I'm also like imagining that locked up is a completely different situation than it is now. Right. So like where, um, a, a, a place where somebody is housed to protect them or protect them from harming other people, which, yeah, I, I guess would happen in such a system, um, is like not the nightmare that, that prison systems currently are. Maybe that's naive, right? So maybe like any, any sort of institution that restricts people's freedom and keeps them from interacting with, either the public or specific members of the public, particularly the people that they care a lot about, um, is going to be pretty torturous for people. Um, but that's, 
I guess that's where my mind goes is to sort of changing the, the circumstances that, that a person is in when they are being separated from other people. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a whole separate discussion of, well, in practical terms, let's say everybody believed what you were saying. What, what sort of change would we see? Um, and would we, you, you know, I mean, this is like, it just seems unlikely that we're going to have this like wholesale reinvention of how we do criminal justice in the US and so then it would be like some tweaks around the edges and like how would how would those tweaks look um maybe not the way that you would like if you're like somebody who's generally wants less harsh punishments I don't know I don't know I mean but like here we're getting into like very murky territory um, I guess the the one other kind of issue with with consequentialism that struck me is aren't these doesn't the the kind of logic of worrying about consequences heavily depend on the empirical facts and aren't you then again stuck with social science research so if you're yeah. like right like what produces the best outcome then you have to look at the research and if the research is untrustworthy how do you make that decision yeah i think that there that's where again i go back to this like um it depends on the seriousness of different types of errors um so the like the error of not like protecting somebody from like a an abusive partner or something like that is really serious um, and so I think that like the room for relying on research that's giving us like really uncertain answers about these questions is greater when we're making consequentialist decisions than when we're making retributivist decisions. Um, that, that's like how I would approach that. And that's, that's what I what I try to argue in the paper, but I don't, I actually like don't imagine, you know, a scenario where we have a legal system that is really like only trying to reduce harm. I don't imagine that situation being any um, easier to run or make decisions in. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess in principle you could say, well, this critique of social science research applies to any use of social science and policy making, mm -hmm. including uses of it that we like for other reasons might like, right? Mm -hmm. To promote goals that we think are morally good or something. Mm -hmm. And I guess it becomes challenging to me to say, well, if we're that fundamentally distrustful of the generalizability and replicability um and inferential strength of social science research, well, where do you draw the line to say, like, well, we do want to care about it in these cases, or this is this is where it ought to at least somewhat influence our decision-making? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there are cases, I mean, this is something that, so um, you and Mickey interviewed Rob and Samin um, and talking about whether uh, social science research should inform um our understanding of of covid from like a, a i guess a psychological or social scientific angle right um and i think one of rob's arguments was like sometimes 
like inaction is not really an option. Um, and so we kind of like, there's no way to say like, okay, we're not sure. So we basically like that, that doing nothing is choosing to do something which could be really harmful. Um, and I would say that there are like cases where that is true. And so the best you can do is make some kind of call based on probably pretty disappointing evidence. Um, but th those are the cases where I see social science evidence as being relevant is cases where like we have to decide one way or another. And, um, and there is like, it's unclear, which it's not clear that like one type of error is dramatically worse than another type of error. Um, so we have to figure things out and we might as well be sort of, um, using that evidence. I, I think that Samin also makes the argument in that debate that sometimes people's intuitions might even be better. Um, especially people who are really experienced with making certain kinds of decisions that their intuitions might be better than the empirical evidence. Um, so yeah, I guess it would have to be a case where we feel like the empirical evidence is probably better than people's intuitions. You know, um, one more kind of famous legal example that I thought of as I was reading this was um, Brown v. Board, the Supreme Court decision that um, outlawed segregation in schools. Mm -hmm. And they famously, that was one of the, I, I think, highest profile and maybe first Supreme Court opinions that really relied heavily on social science to say, yet it harms non-white children to be segregated, mm -hmm. right? And. And, and so that's something where I think your all of your critiques and skepticisms about social science research would apply. So, I mean, would you say, yeah, that wasn't a good idea? Actually, you know, that decision should have been made based on the idea that morally segregation is wrong, not on the putative harms to, to black kids uh, of being in segregated school systems. A hundred percent. I would say that that decision should be made on the basis that morally segregation is wrong. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, that opens like a whole other can of worms that would be maybe fun to talk about sometime, which is like when when are when do questions become non empirical, but instead moral? And um, how do we make decisions that end up in the like moral territory? And should we be ignoring empirical evidence in those cases and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, this is I I feel like this has come up maybe in an episode that. Mickey and I did, um, but this idea of like, um, it's been called belief overkill, where if you think something is morally bad, you also think it's, you know, uh, not efficacious, leads to bad outcomes and so on. So, so for example, if I object to torture, mm -hmm. I might say, yeah, and torturing suspected terrorists doesn't even give you useful information. Right, right, but right, right. It, that's a, that's a strange, you know, to me, like, then you're kind of conceding that if it did, maybe you should torture people. And I feel like that's maybe not a concession you want to make. Yeah, right. It's like similar to arguments for diversity where it's like actually like having like a diverse board of directors improves companies' profits or something like that, you know? And you're like, oh, is that the reason? Right, right, exactly. Like if it were shown to not improve profits, um, <laughs> yeah. then it would be like only white people. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, okay. If it doesn't improve profits, I'm on board with it. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Alexa, anything that uh, I didn't ask you about uh, the paper that you want to get out there? I wanted to ask you one question about the paper, which is, um, so we've been talking about maybe like some of the um, 
the like challenges of switching to a consequentialist system or whatever. But I was curious about your intuitions about whether people would dislike the idea of, um, yeah, like abandoning the idea of retribution. So what do you think is like the strongest defense of why retribution is an important part of the legal system? Yeah. Uh, well, the idea that the legal system reflects people's moral intuitions um, uh-huh. and that those moral intuitions are retributivist, um, at least in part, um, and that kind of thinking about uh, free will and responsibility and capacity is inherent um, to how we make moral judgments, um, even for people like so I, I think if you pushed me, I would say, well, you know, a deterministic universe means that free will in the sense that mm-hmm. we, you know, think about it as, as lay people, it just doesn't exist. At the same time, I can't put away the fact that I react differently to an intentional injury than an accidental one. Um, and it, that we have a very kind of deep-seated idea of personal responsibility and blame being attached to that and that that's hard to get rid of um counter to that though you know our intuitions about like what appropriate punishments are and what kind of classes of people you know ought to be punished um those really do change over time Mm -hmm. um and and generally in a way that gets milder um you know, we don't execute people for stealing anymore. Um, and we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, we've kind of gone in the direction of carving out classes of people who we say, like, well, you're not fully morally responsible and therefore we're going to exempt you from the harshest punishments. Mm-hmm. So I guess I could see that trend continuing to the point where we're at your, you know, utopia where we're like, nobody's morally responsible for anything. Mm-hmm. Let's party. Yeah. <laughs> that's the party that I want to be at.